Joel chapter 3 this morning, and um, as the bulletin states, we're going to talk through um, why does it seem like why does it seem like things bad things happen in the world and they go unresolved. Um, I'm not going to answer that question in a detailed manner this morning because obviously there's some mystery to it all. But we're going to be able to see today that God's judgment ultimately comes and that we can have mercy through Christ Jesus. So we're going to be in Joel chapter 3. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go ahead and read the text. Uh, we're going to go ahead and pray. And then uh, we're going to dive in. Uh, I'm going to primarily focus on 9 through 16 this morning, but we're going to touch on the beginning parts of chapter 3. So I'm going to read 3. Uh, 3 through 16 uh, this morning, then we'll pray. All right. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all of the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and on my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. And they have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and you have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold... I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters to the hands of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all of the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all of you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all of the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is right. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much, God, for the ability to come here to worship you through song, God, through giving, through fellowship, through the reading of your word, the application of it to our hearts. God, we thank you that we have the freedom to be able to do that uh, without fear of repercussion. God, I pray that we would not take for granted uh, the amazing gift that it is that we get to gather with other people and worship your name. Lord, today I pray that you would be with us as we study your word. God, I pray that you would allow us to be shaped by it, to be transformed by it, to be made new through it. Lord, we know that we cannot do this on our own, that, but it's you, Holy Spirit, that does that in our hearts. So, Lord, we just ask that today, God, that you would soften us, that you would change us, that you would renew us, and that you would transform us uh, from the inside out. We love you, and we thank you, and praise you. We ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. So, we're just in a really cheery section this morning here in Joel, chapter 3. A lot of positivity happening on this rainy Sunday morning. 
Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to start with context, because obviously we have not been in the book of, of Joel. Uh, I'm, I'm, there may be some of you that have not ever read the book of Joel. Uh, I encourage you to do so. It's, it's three chapters. You can, you can do it in 20 minutes, 25 minutes, pretty easy, uh, easy read. But basically, we'll do a little bit of an overview and context here. Um, and the reason why we do context, I, I, I like to say this every time that, uh, that I preach, the reason that we have to talk about the context of a passage is because a verse sits inside of a paragraph, and a paragraph sits inside of a chapter, and a chapter sits inside of a book, and a book sits inside of a testament, and then the testament sits inside of the Bible as a whole. So if we do not understand the context surrounding particular verses or particular sections, we, are, we run the risk of taking things out of context and applying things in ways that they don't need to be applied. So this morning, why don't we go ahead and just take one out of context just for fun, just to illustrate this point. Let's look in Joel chapter 3. Let's look in verse 14. Let's do verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Here's me taking this out of context. There are many, many people walking through really dark places and valleys in their lives where they need to make decisions. And what they need to do is they need to make a decision to follow Jesus. That's not what this verse says. This verse, because of the context, says there are many, many people in the valley where God has already made the decision and they have already made the decision to turn away from him so his judgment is coming upon them. Like those are two different things. God's judgment coming upon the multitudes on the day of decision and us saying, oh, we need to make a decision today to follow Jesus. Without the context surrounding this particular passage, it's very easy for us to take things out of context and for us to be able to understand uh, what the Bible actually says. And the reason why I bring this up is because it's up to every one of you to know your Bibles well enough to not just trust what the guy on the stage is saying, but to be able to say, no, no, like that's not what, that's not what this text means. And there are too many people sitting in too many churches today that just take for granted what the pastor is saying because he went to seminary and he's the one talking because they don't know their Bibles well enough to challenge and to understand and to be shaped. So context is extremely important, not only in reading Old Testament passages, but even for every one of you, and I'm sure Chris and Seth and Ed and many others would encourage you to, to challenge what's coming from the stage if you believe that the Bible doesn't reflect it. Because this is not just a, a gathering of people that listen to a particular person on a weekend and then just say, oh, yeah, I believe what he says because he's smarter than me. But the gathering of the church is for us to, to together worship God through honoring his word and being shaped and transformed by it. Does it make sense? So this morning, Joel chapter 3 sits inside of the book of Joel. So we'll do a quick overview. The book of Joel is one of the minor prophets. It is the, there are 12 prophets, 12 prophets that wrote books in the back half of the Old Testament. The reason they're called the minor prophets is not because they're insignificant, but because their writings are minor in size compared to the major prophets, being Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on and so forth. So when we look at the minor prophets, they're not minor in the sense of their significance, they're minor in the sense of their scope and of their length. So Joel is one of those, and the, the, main, the main aspect of the book of Joel, the, the big thrust here, is that Israel has turned away from God. They have gone towards other idols. They have gone towards worshiping other things. So God comes, and he punishes them for that, that sin by bringing plagues of locusts. Again, really cheery book that we're in. So Joel chapter 1 we can see that Israel is indicted for turning away from God, so he sends a plague of locusts in order to call them to repentance. And then Joel chapter two follows a similar pattern 
of describing God's judgment, the judgment of God towards sin, but Joel appeals to the Israelites that God's character is to forgive and to restore. So the back half of Joel, chapter two, describes how the Lord eventually relents from the disaster that he brought upon them, and he, he not only restores them back to their former state, but then he goes above and beyond and restores to them everything that they lost um, on, a, on a greater scale than what was actually taken away. And I think what's important there, this is just a side note, it's amazing that God doesn't just wipe our slates clean, but he gives us more than we can abundantly, or that we can ask him and imagine. He gives us abundance. So, so in our own salvation, the Lord doesn't just take our sins and wipe them away, but he takes our sins and then he gives us life. And, it's, and we can see this in Joel chapter two, and we see this even in our own lives, that when we come to know Jesus, when we trust in him, when we give our lives fully over to him, when he transforms our hearts, he doesn't just say, okay, you kind of like, you, you can start over now. I've just hit the reset button. But you're, you're on your own from now on. He doesn't say that. He gives, you more, he gives you abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine. Abundantly more than you could ask or imagine because the Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the character of God in Joel and it's the character of God for us today. So that brings us to Joel chapter three. And so Joel's message turns away from Israel in Joel chapter three and he turns to the surrounding nations. So verses one through eight that we just read, he sort of sets the why judgment is coming to these nations and it's a pretty scathing judgment. I mean, we can just go over a couple of them here. And you can see it in Joel uh, 2 and 3, where, or Joel chapter 3, verses 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. So here's why God is bringing judgment upon the nations. <clears throat> One, they've scattered the, the nation of Israel among the nations. They've divided up the land. They've cast lots for my people. So they're, they're literally gambling for Israelites as slaves. They're trading boys, young boys for prostitutes into slavery. They're trading young girls for a bottle of wine. Like th- these are pretty heinous crimes that these people, these nations are, are actually committing against God's people. They took away the silver and the gold from the temple of God, then the list goes on and on. And then verse nine, we can see that God enters into judgment with these people. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and I'm going to read the section just 9 through 16 again just so we can see it. And then I have, I have three points. Don't worry, I'm not, this is not just going to be all lecture on minor prophets. Um, I have three points that we want to kind of walk away with uh, regarding God's judgment in our salvation. So let's read uh, 9 through 16 uh, just because I enjoy reading the Bible. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. <clears throat> Stir up the mighty men. Let all of the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Excuse me. Hasten and come, all of you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all of the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, 
a stronghold to the people of Israel. So just a couple things here before we dive into our points. We can see in this section that the imagery and the metaphors are, are rapidly changing. So if you see that he jumps from proclaiming things among the nations to calling the nations to them, and then there's another line that says, bring down your warriors, O Lord, which is like Joel sort of talking in the middle of the section. And then, he, then it jumps down, even in the sun and the moon are darkened and the Lord roars from Zion. So all of a sudden, God's in the, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, but now he's on the mountain of Zion. Like, what's going on? Why is it so all over the place? And it's because in apocalyptic literature like this, when, we, when, when the prophets are typically talking about things in the future, it's not a linear progression, typically. It's not, okay, we're starting here and we're ending here. Okay, God started in the valley and he ended up on the mountain. What's happening here is he's actually communicating things about who God is and, and what he has done. And we can see that in how many imperatives we see in the section. There are 15 times that God is telling people what to do. 15 times in this section. Proclaim among the nations. Consecrate for war. That's an, that's a, a, an imperative. Stir up the mighty men. Let them draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten, come, gather, bring down your warriors. Let the nations stir themselves up. Come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Put in the sickle. Go in and tread. The vats overflow. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means that God is in charge. He's not reacting to these people. They're not setting this, the, the, they're not calling the shots. They're not saying, God, you come meet me down here and I'll take you on. God is saying, I'm fully in charge of this situation and as strong as you think you are, as evil, as much as you think evil will triumph, I'm ultimately going to triumph in the end. So when we look at texts like this, it seems like they don't make any sense, but when we can look at the context around them and the things that are happening within them, the book of Joel is telling us that God is ultimately the one who's calling the shots and it's better to be on his team than to be against him. And then in verse 16, we can see, obviously, the Lord is a refuge to his people, which is kind of the bright spot in this. So here's my first point. God will judge evildoers. He will. But it rarely happens on our timeline. God will judge evildoers. And this isn't super popular. I know if you start talking about judgment, people are like, ah, I knew it. It's just church, you know, people shaking their fist at me because of my sin. But God will judge and there's a good reason for why God judges evildoers. But it rarely happens on our timeline. And we see that in verses 11 and 12, where God says, hasten and come, all of you surrounding nations, gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I, being God, will sit and judge all of the nations. Now, there's so much evil that happens in the world that seemingly goes unpunished. We hear stories every day. I mean, you can watch the news, you can listen to the radio, you can get online. There's stories upon stories upon stories about all of these evil things that happen in the world. And many of them either go unpunished or the punishment doesn't even seem to even be close to matching the, the horrific nature of the crime. When somebody walks into a school and shoots up a bunch of kids and then they end up killing themselves, is, is that justice? Is that person really held accountable for his sin? of murdering children? When you have uh, al-Assad dropping bombs on children in Syria because he wants to stay in, in, in power? Is there really justice there? Is, is he, will he ever be held for, to account for those sorts of atrocities that are, that are 
brought upon innocent, innocent lives, when we have people that are actively trying to pass legislation that murders the most vulnerable among us, will those people be held to account? Will, the, will, those, will, that, will that guilt go unpunished? This is why judgment is, is actually a, a, a good thing, if we're honest. Because, I mean, when you hear the word judgment, I'm sure that there's a, a, a wide range of reaction. Judgment has a negative connotation or judgment has a positive connotation depending on, where, on what seat you're sitting in. There's evil in the world that goes unpunished. There are things that happen in the world that are even brought upon us by the sin that, was, that, that just exists. And the benefit that we can see here in Joel is that God himself will judge the nations, but he rarely happens on our timeline. And even on just a smaller scale, let's, let's, let's get away from like dictators bombing children. We'll just kind of like zoom in a little bit. Why does it seem like people that cheat and lie at work get promoted? Why does it seem like when, when we do all of the right things, the, the right things don't seem to happen back to us? I mean, the Psalms are full of this. We, I mean, we read a section of that this morning. There are wicked people that go unpunished in the world. And the question is, Will they go unpunished? And the, the answer to that question is no. But it often does not happen on the timeline that we would like. So Joel chapter 3 points forward to Revelation chapter 14. We're not going to turn there today, but you can write that down. And it paints the picture of the final judgment where God will ultimately eradicate evil from the world. And Joel chapter 3 foreshadows the scene of God coming in to, coming out of eternity into the world to be able to bring judgment and justice, and wiping away every tear, and bringing wholeness and life to the world. The Lord will make all things right, but it doesn't always happen on our timeline. But, there's the easy part is to say, yeah, you're right, I'm really, really glad that these dictators are going to be punished eventually at the end of time. It's easy to get outraged at the sins of others, but we must realize that God is gracious enough to not bring swift punishment on our sin. The timeline that we want judgment for other people is often very expedient. I want those bad people to be punished right now. But rarely do we say, I want my sin to be punished immediately. The Lord is gracious and merciful, and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We want swift justice for other people quickly, and we want patience for our sins. We should be happy that God doesn't do things on our timeline, and he does them on his. Because that leads us to the next point. That God is patient in his judgment, but we should not use that as a reason to continue in our sin. The Lord is patient in his punishment and his judgment, but we should not use that as a reason to continue in our sin. We've seen that God will bring judgment, and we also see that God is gracious, and he is merciful, and he is slow to anger, and he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but he will by no means clear the guilty, and he will always bring judgment and justice on his timeline, which for every one of us in this room, that is a good thing. It's a good thing that God brings justice on his timeline because God's kindness 
is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness should not be seen as apathy. Just because we haven't been punished for our sins doesn't mean that God is apathetic towards our sins. Just because we're getting away with things that we think we're getting away with doesn't mean that God doesn't see them or know them or will bring judgment and justice to them. There are plenty of situations in my life where there, are, there were things that happened a long time ago that seemingly went unpunished and people seemingly got away, got away with. And these people presumed that because nothing was happening about it, they, that meant that God didn't care about it. But God will always bring judgment and justice. My mom used to use this as a scare tactic when I was a kid. She'd go, be sure, be sure your sins will find you out. It's in, it's in Proverbs. So she would always be like, if she thought I was lying, she's like, be sure your sins are going to find you out. And I would just like be so guilty. I was like looking around all the time like somebody's going to catch me. I know nobody saw me do it, but, but you know. But because God doesn't do things immediately doesn't mean that he's not going to do something at all. Let's turn to Romans chapter 2. I think this illustrates this point really well that just because, I'm just going to repeat this over and over again because it's very important because I know there are things in every one of our lives that we're either unrepentant of or that we continue to do or we don't think God cares about and we think that because nothing bad is happening to us, it means that God doesn't care about those particular things. Just because you haven't received judgment or punishment for your sin or for the behaviors that you are continuing to walk in even after you've become a follower of Jesus doesn't mean God doesn't care about them. But God actually cares enough about us not to punish us right away, but to allow for us to repent. So Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 is going to give us a really good picture of this. So I'm going to read 1, uh, I'm going to read one, through, one through 10. One through, one through 11. So just for the sake of context, I'm sure we've all read Romans, but Romans chapter 2 comes after Romans chapter 1, believe it or not. And Romans chapter 1 talks about how... Um, the ultimate sin against God is the, replace, the replacement of creation over the creator. So sin, at its core, is an elevation of the created thing above the one who created all things. So when we, when we are lustful, we are elevating a created thing above what God has called us to in purity and in love. When we, bring, uh, when we steal or when we lie or when we are even self-sufficient in the way that we live our lives, we're saying that we, the created thing, and the things that have been created are more important and more valuable than the created one who is blessed forever. Amen. So that is what Romans chapter 1 talks about, and he's primarily saying that against the Gentiles. He's not talking to the Jews right away. Paul isn't. He's saying the Gentiles have done all of these things. They have elevated the creation over the creator, and that is the sin that they have committed against God. And then Paul brings it right into the, he just brings it right to the Jews' doorstep here in Romans chapter 2. We're going to read. Therefore, Therefore, obviously, means we're a continuation from the last part. Whenever you see therefore, you ask the question, what's it there for? That's a, it's a good little nugget. So if you see therefore, you always need to connect something from behind it forward. So that's why I brought Romans chapter 1 in. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So he's talking to the Jews. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
This is interesting because I'm sure, my, myself included, there are many of us in this room who would say, well, I'm not as bad as the murderer or the rapist or the, or the adulterer, but Jesus brings sin down to a level of not behavior but of intent in the heart. So the Lord, as we condemn those people who, I'm condemning al-Assad for dropping bombs on children and murdering kids, Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 5 says, if you've hated somebody in your heart, you have done the same thing as murdering them. So the, the whole playing field of sin is really leveled out, and Paul's doing that here, where he says, because you, the judge, practice the same things, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So God's judgment is coming, and it's rightly falling on the wicked. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? It's a valid question. Verse 4 is the, is, the, is the clincher here. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing for, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, but, yeah, does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So we can see here that God's kindness in every one of our lives is not apathy, but it's meant to lead us to repentance. So the question that we have to be asking ourselves today is what areas of our lives are we continuing in sin assuming that God doesn't care? What, what areas of our lives are we still keeping away from God because we love them too much? Where in our lives are we honestly a little too self-seeking, a little too self-sufficient? And I mean, I find myself in that boat like every day. Like I, I have a tendency to run to God when I am at the end of my rope and I don't have the energy, and I don't have the effort, I can't put any more effort in, and I'm so frustrated, and I need, I'm like, God, God, help me. I need you to give me the strength to do these things. I need you to give me the strength to move forward in these areas and aspects of my life. That's like my tendency. That is an area of my life that I need to be surrendering over to the Lord. Because what it is, is it's elevating my effort and my ability to muscle through it and to do it I'm over-relying on the one who can give me the strength to actually accomplish what I need to accomplish. So there are areas of our lives where we are keeping things back, we are not fully giving ourselves over to the Lord, and we're assuming that because God's already died for our sins, and we've already said the sinner's prayer, and we've already been baptized, and we have already given to the church every week, and we already show up every weekend, and we, we go and we eat coffee and donuts afterwards and make small talk, that somehow God doesn't care about the things that hide in the dark parts of our hearts. So the question that we need to ask today is where am I presuming on the patience of God? Where am I presuming on the, on the kindness of God? Where am I presuming on the forbearance of God today? And these are tough questions to answer. They're tough questions to answer. 
But here's an, I, I will say this again. This is another thing I'll say a thousand times. If you want to you wanna have God answer a prayer for you, you should ask him to show you where your sin is in your heart. Like you want to know if God's real and, you know, like, will answer prayer? Say, Lord, show me the places in my heart where I'm not honoring you. He is 100% faithful to answer that prayer. You know why? Because he has your best interest in mind. Bringing those things out of the darkness and into the light is the best thing that can happen to you, even though it's the most scary thing that you can probably think of right now. God will answer those prayers. So even in us thinking through the places in our hearts, we need to be asking the Lord to reveal those things in our hearts. I mean, David does it in the Psalms. Search me and know me. Reveal any grievous way in me. And and lead me in the way everlasting. So the Lord is faithful to do that in our hearts. So don't feel panicked and frustrated. Oh, like, oh my gosh, like I've got these things that God's going to be so mad at me if I tell him about it. (laughs) Like he's aware. He's aware. He knows. He knows, and, and he knows not to punish you, but to bring you life. Amen. So that's something that we should be praying about today. Yeah. Third point. Sorry, I got a little, I'm a little rabbit trail today. But we are going to land the plane on my third point. In the midst of judgment and sin, as the people of God, we can find refuge in Jesus. In the midst of judgment and in the midst of sin, if we have put our faith in God, he is our refuge and our stronghold. So there are two things here that are important. He is our refuge and our strongholds at the end of time. So when we see these pictures of God's judgment in Joel chapter three, and then we see God's judgment in Revelation 14, and we see God's judgment in Revelation 18 and 19 and 20, like all of that, we don't have anything to fear because God is our strength. God is our stronghold. God is our refuge. Let's turn to Romans chapter three. I want to illustrate this point out again as well, that our refuge and our hope and our strength is found in not in ourselves. It's not found in being a good person. It's not found in doing all the right things. It's not found in saying all the right things. It's found in Christ alone. Romans chapter three, we'll start at the beginning in verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Also, let me just pause here. Isn't it amazing that our faithlessness does not nullify God's faithfulness? Like, isn't that incredible? That no matter how faithless we tend to be or unfaithful we tend to be towards the creator of the universe who loves us and cares for us, it doesn't make him any less faithful. It doesn't make him any less faithful. So lest you think that you don't deserve for God to be faithful in your life, you don't deserve it because God is the one who's giving it. God is faithful. And our faithlessness, our unfaithfulness, does not nullify the faithfulness of God in every one of our lives and in every one in our hearts. And I, I have experienced the faithfulness of God more in the last six months of my life, seven months of my life than I think I've ever in my entire life. My little sister died of breast cancer in February of this year. And in walking through that journey with her, sitting by her bedside, 
feeding her ice chips, trying to, to make her somewhat comfortable. I, had a cha- I was challenged with the faithfulness of God. Is God really faithful when I'm sitting here praying that he heals her and he's not? Is he really faithful when, when I'm seeing my best friend from the majority of my life wasting away? Is he really faithful? And the answer to that question is yes, he is. And here's just like a little sliver of that for, for me. I'm just going to share it. I wasn't, it's on my notes, but it makes sense. So we, Jane, my sister's name was Jane. We were in the hospital the end of, end of January, early February. Um, we were in the hospital um, in Southern California. And she was just not doing very well at all. Uh, physically, she was starting to, to break down. Her liver was starting to have complications. She had, she had metastatic breast cancer. Obviously, that just makes its way through your body, and, and that's, the, that's the end of it. And I'm sitting there in the hospital, unable to have anyone else come in because of the COVID rules. You were allowed one visitor, and that one visitor had to be the same person for the entirety of the stay. So we were there for like six days. So my brother Andrew and my mom came out, but they couldn't come up and see her. They couldn't give me any relief. They couldn't do any of those things. And so I'm sitting here and I'm just praying lots of things. But one thing I was praying was, Lord, like, please don't let her die here in this place with just me. Like, please make a way for us to get out of here so that she can, at least if she's going to go home to be with you, she can do it in a way that is not in the sterile air, not hooked up to machines, not with strangers in the room, not with away from her mom and her brother and her dad and her sister. And I just prayed it and prayed it and prayed it and prayed it. And as the time went on, it did not seem like that was going to be the case. Doctors come in, oh, there's a new infection. We have to keep you for another two days. People with lab work comes back. This, that, and the other. So Sunday rolls around. Doctor comes in and he goes, yeah, we're going to send you home today. He's like, everything's coming back okay. And, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and let you guys go. He's like, Normally, I probably wouldn't do it, but I, just, I, think that, I think it's probably the right thing to do. So we, we load, we, that evening, we loaded her up. We put her, put her in the car. We drove her home, and, and she ended up passing away a week, almost a week later. But the way that she passed away was sitting in front of a window in a bed, looking at the ocean, and she just went to sleep. I lost my sister this year. But I saw God's faithfulness in the ability for him to answer prayers that were seem, it could maybe seem insignificant. But that meant the world to me. It meant the world to me. I saw that God's faithfulness still remains in the midst of me losing the, the, one of the closest people to me. Me being unfaithful through my entire life stuck in patterns of sin, not making the right decisions, reaping the consequences of my decisions, guess what? That didn't make God any less faithful in the moments that mattered. And he continues to be faithful today. I missed her a ton. I miss her every day. But the other element of God's faithfulness is that when we were singing this morning, we were singing and worshiping God at the same time that she was. 
she's in heaven. She is a hope. And God is, was faithful to take her home, to be with him, to live for eternity. And we get to have that same hope and lean on that same faithfulness if we turn from our sin and we trust in Jesus. Let's jump back into Romans chapter three. Verse five. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if, I, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why, why not do evil so that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, rather. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, God comes knowledge of sin. Verse 21, and this is where it gets good for all of us. Because we're, we're represented in this early part of this. This kind of goes without saying, but to front half of chapter three, we may, we may say, say we're not as bad as these other people, Romans chapter three says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have gone our own way. All of us have chosen the creation over the creator. But in verse 21, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We get to have hope in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. Christ came and he lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved to die a thousand times over. And he rose again for our salvation and for our life. And that is something that we cannot take credit for. It's not something that we can earn. It is not something that we can gain on our own. But in the day of judgment, we have the opportunity to rest in the arms of Jesus. On the day of judgment, he gets to be the stronghold. On the day of judgment, he gets to be the refuge. On the day of judgment, he gets to be the refuge for us because he ultimately took his sin, took our sins upon himself. He became the sacrifice that needed to be made. He became the sin that we deserved. And because of that, we can have a life 
and we can have hope. So the questions today in closing are where in our lives are we presuming upon the grace and the mercy and the forbearance and the faithfulness of God? I think that's a a good question for us to ask. Secondly, where in our lives are we finding refuge outside of Jesus? Because there are some of us, myself included, that find refuge in the amount of money that we have, the skills that we have, the family that we have, the relationships that we have, the job that we have, our, our, our abilities to do the right thing. We find refuge in a lot of things that are not Jesus. So asking the question, what, where am I finding refuge? And what is my stronghold when things go bad? When things go bad in your life, what do you run to? Is a good question to ask. What do you run to? Run to pornography? You run to Netflix? You run to a motorcycle ride? You run to alcohol? You run to just like scrolling on your phone until you feel nothing? What, what do we run to in times of trouble? And that will be a really good indicator for us as to what we truly find valuable. So let's, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna sing, we're gonna pray um, at the, here at the end of the service. But I think that understanding and knowing that God's judgment is coming on those who do evil is, is a good thing. Because the evil in the world that goes unpunished needs to be punished. But that judgment is something that we deserve. And if we do not put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we will get it. So if you're here today and you have not put your faith in Jesus, I encourage you to to talk to really anyone around you. We would love to be able to talk with you about what it means to find refuge in God and not not in ourselves. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you and praise you. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for being here uh, during the, the reading of your word. God, thank you for being with us as we, uh, as we sing, as we worship you through all the elements of our service. God, please, please transform the way that we think about you. Please transform the way that we think about our sin. Transform the way that we think about ourselves. Bring them in line with what your word says. And God, I pray against any fear that we may have of confessing our sins to our brothers and sisters. I pray against any of that fear and anxiety and rejection and shame that we may feel. Because what the Lord has done is he's taken our shame. Lord, thank you for taking our shame. Thank you for taking our guilt. God, help us see the confession of sin as something that brings life and not death. God, be with us today. We love you. Thank you and praise you. We ask these things in your beautiful name.